Thank you, Rich. And good morning, everybody. Dan, I want to just tell you that I, uh, where are you? There you are. I feel your pain and I feel your relief with regard to your nasal stuff. Um, gosh, I guess it was about 10 or so years ago, I had nasal surgery and it was so helpful. I mean, prior, <clears throat> prior to uh, the surgery, I got a dog like this, you know, kind of like Rocky. But after that, it was amazing. And I don't know, I don't want to put you on the spot, Dan, but if any of y'all ever had nasal surgery, the adventure is not the beforehand, it's the after. As you go in and the doctor says, okay, now we're going to take out, you know, the packing is what they call it. Well, while they got you asleep, they shove everything but the kitchen sink up in your nose. (laughs) I mean, really. (laughs) First thing he does is pull out two shoehorns. I thought, that was in there? And then he pulls another one out. I thought, you know, I could use those for my, get my shoes on. And the next thing is they pull out the packing, which are these strips. You know, and he gets tweezers in there, and it feels like your brain is coming out. Just like, like what they did with the Egyptians to mummify them. But they pull them, they begin to pull these long strips out of your nose, and it just keeps coming. In fact, the guy backed up. And I thought, you know, one more step, my friend, and we can bring children in here and do, you know, jump rope. (laughs) Anyway, Dan, I hope that makes you feel a little better. Well, rodents rank pretty high on our fear list in our house, right under lizards, but we're not going to go back to the lizard thing. But I'm guessing that rodents aren't that... uh, you know, too welcome in your home either. When Kathy and I were building our house, we heard a noise in the attic. We were there one day, and everything had been sheetrocked, and it was just, just you know, textured, and I think we were ready to paint or something. Anyway, we're walking around, and we were in one of the girls' bedrooms, and above it we heard this across the ceiling. And Kathy's like, go up there and kill it, whatever it is. So, you know, and this was like more than you know, a little mouse. This is like, this is like rat. And your mind, of course, exaggerates. I had this, uh, I imagined up there was this whole nest of these, you know, giant Gambian rats. These rats that are like, you know, 17 inches and weigh about six pounds. So I head upstairs with rat traps, poison, you know, blow torches, all kinds of stuff to get ready. And I got over the rafters that were right above the girl's bedroom where I heard the, you know, the the scurrying. And I leaned down to set a trap. You know, first of all, if you've got a trap and you've got the guts to actually set that thing, and you've got to hold it very carefully because if that thing goes off, even if you're perfectly safe, it just scares you to death. So I'm leaning down, getting ready to put the trap out there, and out jumps a cat. Now, when you're thinking rat, and out jumps something as long as your arm. I screamed. (laughs) My only honor is I didn't scream like a woman. But man, I screamed. 
screamed. It scared me so bad I almost fell through the sheetrock into the bedroom below. And then, of course, okay, now I understand what this was. This wasn't a rat, it was a cat. Turned out what had happened is this pregnant mother cat had gotten up there during the building process and found a nice, safe place to have her kittens. So we thought, well, you know, we don't have to deal with this now. Well, maybe they'll find their way out and we don't have to mess with them. So we just left them up there and I thought, you know what, well, this is going to solve our mouse problem. A <laughs> couple more weeks, we go back and we're walking around and I hear this, meow, 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 and we're like downstairs. So like, where is this coming from? This is sort of, and it would not stop. It's like sort of what I imagine hell will be like. I should say would be like. I, I won't be there. But just this constant cat sound. And it turns out we finally traced it they, and into the wall. They had like fallen down in between the walls. And they, there was all these little kittens in the wall. So I went upstairs. There was no way to get down to them. So I had to bust the sheetrock out, you know, about yay high. And then reach down and grab these cats out one by one. And they keep coming. But the last one was a fighter and clawed me to death. I had to get a glove on to reach down and get this cat out. I thought, what does it want me to do, leave it in there? I'll put you back then. (laughs) But you think you'll know how you'll respond when you're afraid. You think that you'll respond, you know, all tough. The reality is, if fear catches you just right, you'll end up screaming like a woman. And And I'm talking to the men. And ladies, you're welcome to scream like a woman. Some of us live, though, with that kind of fear all the time. What's going to happen? Can't, can't go outside because something's going to happen. Can't go that way because I'll fear that this is going to happen. Well, maybe we shouldn't go there because I read in the news that eight years ago such and so happened. We live in a culture that feeds fear. And often it feeds our fear to make money off us some way. But the reality is we also have a nature that is, that is fearful. This is why the most often command that we read in the scriptures is don't be afraid. Fear not, because we are people who do fear. We are afraid. We're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of the known. We're afraid of the past. We're afraid of the future because we are not in control. Let's look together at 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles 30 takes us right in the middle here of Hezekiah and his reign. Hezekiah, we are in a series where we're looking at some kings, some hand-picked kings from the books of Kings and Chronicles, and Hezekiah is our king of the day. Hezekiah was a great guy, such a great guy. Uh, not a perfect king. He had some, um, had some hiccups, but for the most part, Hezekiah was magnificent. His name means the Lord has strengthened. The Lord has strengthened. And we, he needed God's strength, as we're going to see. Second Chronicles chapter 30. Um, just so, kind of set the background. In Hezekiah's reign, the northern kingdom... Of course, you remember Israel had split to two kingdoms. You've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom had 20 kings. Not one of them was godly. Southern kingdom had 20 kings. About eight or so were godly. Hezekiah is one of them. 
And the northern kingdom was taken into exile by Assyria. So they are actually taken away, and it happened during Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah started his reign at 7, uh, 715 B.C. That actually is a little before Hezekiah's reign. The northern kingdom was taken in 722. So not long. Hezekiah was definitely there. He's probably even co-reigning with his father prior to, his, to 715 when he started reigning by himself. But anyway, Hezekiah is very aware of the Assyrians, very aware of uh, what happened in the northern kingdom. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, he issues an invitation. Look right there in verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Look down at verse 6. The couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to those of you who escaped and are left from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a horror as you see. Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his burning anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So the couriers passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So the northern kingdom, you'd think they would have learned their lesson. The Assyrians were brought in by God because of the northern kingdom's unfaithfulness. Most of the people were taken out of the kingdom, but there were some that were left behind. And it's these to whom that were left behind that Hezekiah says, you know, we're about to enjoy the Passover here. There's only one place that God's people can worship, not up there in the north, but here in Jerusalem. Let's invite them to join us. And so he does. And he sends these couriers out, as we've read, this wonderful invitation and this urging to come back and, and to come and worship the Lord in Jerusalem where you know you ought to be worshiping. And many of them laughed and mocked, but many, or some, were told of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves. This is a great... It's not really an official principle, you might say, of our message or lesson today, but it's a great principle to just kind of mention that as you talk about the Lord to people, a lot of people are going to mock and scorn, but some are going to respond. And those that respond are worth those that mock and scorn. So share the message. Just share it and let it fall where it lands. It's going to fall, some people, it's going to fall on soil that is hard, and Satan's going to take away that seed. But sometimes that seed's going to fall on good soil, and it's going to take root. God has prepared their hearts beforehand. The providential occurrences or conversations that we have with people, the providence doesn't begin at the moment of our conversation. 
It it began months, weeks, maybe even years prior to that, as God had their heart being prepared for that moment that the gospel hits them, and then they hear and believe. So share the message. Hezekiah did, and some did come, which is fantastic. And look down at verse 18. So they come, but they don't have all their P's and Q's or ducks in a line here. Verse 18, we're told, For a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover, otherwise than prescribed. For Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God the Lord God of his fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. I wanted to read that just to give us a reminder of the heart of God, even in the Old Testament. You know, we typically think of the God of the Old Testament as a God that you better mind your P's and Q's. But the reality is the same God that we worship today It's the same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Hezekiah prays for them. Says he specifically he says, May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart. I love that. Verse nineteen. Everyone who prepares his heart. The heart is what God is after. We're not always going to do it right. We're not always going to do it exactly according to the letter of the law. Their heart was not rebellious against God in this manner. Their heart was for the Lord. They just didn't know. And Hezekiah says, please pardon them, even though they have not purified themselves. This gives us a a window into the heart of God. God is not about rules. He is about the heart. That doesn't mean the rules don't matter. But what it means is uh, God looks at the heart and often overlooks our mistakes. All right, we'll skip a couple of chapters, if you would, and let's look at chapter 32. All of these people that came south, uh, we, don't, we, don't, we don't read it here, or we haven't read it here, but there were a whole lot more refugees that had actually made their way south. Remember, the northern kingdom was taken into exile in 722, and as a result, many were taken, but some of the, the, those in the northern kingdom fled south. And so there was a lot that was there who were refugees. There were also some who came for this Passover. And so Jerusalem's ranks swelled. There was a lot of people there. And this sort of created a problem now that we'll see in chapter 32. Look right in verse 1. After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. Once again, we typically think of Old Testament as almost retribution theology. That is, that if you're good, God's going to bless you. If you're bad, God's going to curse you. Well, we see that in the book of Deuteronomy. But this is a general thing. There are exceptions, and we see that here in chapter 32. We see that in the book of Job. Job was faithful, and yet, obviously, Job suffered what was not Uh, relative to his faithfulness. And here we're told after these acts of faithfulness, this Assyrian king, Sennacherib, came and invades Judah and besieges Hezekiah's fortified cities. 
Hezekiah, the good godly Hezekiah. This Assyrian bully tries to threaten and intimidate. Um, bullies as adults, you know, we, we get legal on that. And anymore, I know that uh, even with kids in schools, the more and more it gets legal. But back when I was in school, it was kind of our own problem. And there was a bully that for some reason didn't like me. His name was Herbie. Can I just tell you his name? Herbie. I won't tell you his last name. Who knows, he's probably sitting in this class. His name was Herbie, and he didn't like me, which was fine because the feeling was definitely mutual. Herbie had failed, I don't know, at least two or three grades. So he was like a foot taller than me. And he would like walk around, and he'd see me from down the hall. Hey, I'm going to get you, Styles. That's what he'd tell me. I'd just kind of wave at him. And the times that he would try to get me, you know, the good thing is he could never catch me. I was always a lot faster in my tennis shoes than Herbie was in his steel toe boots. <laughs> there was one time he caught me, and uh, let's just say it really hurt. In fact, that may be the point, Dan, that my septum got deviated, <laughs> and I had to have the nasal surgery in my adult years. But still, Herbie, you know, he, he was a bully, and I outran him. But the great thing is, after I left junior high school and went on to high school, Herbie stayed in junior high school. <laughs> so he was not my problem anymore. But there was also a bully system in Hezekiah's day, and the bully system worked very simply. A foreign power would come in, invade, conquer, and then say, all right, I'll let you keep living here, but here's, here's the rules. You're going to pay me X number of, you know, tribute is what it's called. You're going to pay me this every year, and you better pay. If you don't pay, we'll come and kill you. This is how the bully system worked. It's a very simple system, very effective. Well, Hezekiah initially bowed to that because the Assyrians were, like, major. I mean, we like they, when they say they can kill you, they really could do it. But then Hezekiah got to thinking, you know what? I'm not going to do that anymore. And he decided not to. So Sennacherib, true to his word, invades Judah and begins to um, take various cities. Sherman Burford said this. He said, there used to be this bully who would demand my lunch money every day. Since I was smaller, I'd give it to him. Then I decided to fight back. I started taking karate lessons. But the karate lesson guy said that I had to start paying him $5 a lesson, so I just went back to giving the $5 to the bully. <laughs> so look, if I'm going to pay, I might as well pay the guy that wants to kill me. In our lives as well, we feel it's a lot easier to just pay the bully than to do the hard work of the right thing. Hezekiah decided we're going to do the right thing. Look at verse 2. Now when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs, which were outside the city, and they helped him. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? Now look all the way down at verse 30. 
verse 30, toward the end of the chapter. This sort of gives us a summary, but it connects back to what we just read. Verse 30 says, It was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all that he did. So this is a wonderful bit of archaeology that you could go and see today. Now, remember, Hezekiah is like 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ. That's like 2,700 years ago and change. You can go to Jerusalem today and you can wade through what's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. Has anybody ever waded through Hezekiah's Tunnel? All right. Joseph has. All right. There's a few of you who have. Well, get over to Jerusalem and do it. It is fantastic. It is really fantastic. What it is is they, they chiseled this tunnel out of the bedrock. The geography of Jerusalem is, uh, I want to say it was poorly designed because God designed it. But if you were going to design a city that was going to be defensive, you wouldn't put your water where the water of Jerusalem was. God did it, obviously, for his sovereign purposes. But uh, the, way the way it's designed, just imagine this, this hill that is, has steep slopes on all sides, and it's really sort of a long hill. So imagine this long hill that's got steep slopes on all sides except the north. And if you're going to build a wall, you're going to put a wall to defend it around the top so that people have to go uphill and deal with a wall. You're not going to put the wall down in the valley because then you just get up on the other side of the hill and shoot arrows over the wall. The problem is your water, the Gihon Spring, came up from the valley. So what are you going to do? They, they, for many centuries, they just built a wall around the spring. It was called uh, the water gate or the gate house. Uh, but Hezekiah said, you know what, let's change this. Let's don't let when the Assyrians come, we don't want them to find abundant water. Why don't we redirect, which is what verse 30 tells us, they redirected it. He chiseled a tunnel from the spring underneath the city to where it would come up on the west side or the other side of the city where they were going to build a big wall around it. In other words, divert the water from where it was, come underneath the city to come up inside the city, and then we'll cover the entrance to where the Assyrians won't even know that there's any water there. And that's exactly what they did. If you were to walk through that tunnel, at the end of the tunnel, right on the left-hand side when you come out, there is a hole in the wall, basically on the side of the wall, where a, an inscription was there. It was called the Siloam Inscription. It was found like in the early 20th centuries by some kids that were playing in there. And you can go to Istanbul today and see it, or you can go to the Israel Museum and see a replica of it, or you can Google it and see it here, you know, this afternoon. But it's an inscription that, that is written in Hebrew from the time of Hezekiah that talks about how the two diggers dug from both sides and they met in the middle and they were all excited about how they met. And it's a piece of archaeology that takes the ancient Hebrew script, that takes what we read in our English Bibles, that takes uh, also uh, the archaeology that you can actually interact with today and walking through it. It's just ma magnificent. And we're told, look back at verse Five, he continues after the water in verse 4. Verse 5, he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it and built another outside wall and strengthened the Milo and made weapons and shields in great number. This 
another outside wall is also something you can see in Jerusalem. Back in 1967, after Israel finally got all Jerusalem uh, together, uh, unified again, prior to uh, 67, even though Israel was technically a country or a state, they didn't have access to the whole old city. But after 67, they got access to the whole old city, began to build in the Jewish quarter, and as they were building, they found this wall that dated to Hezekiah's time, and they realized that this huge wall, it's called the broad wall, is actually the wall that's mentioned here. And the reason Hezekiah built this outside wall that basically took the whole western hill and put it within the confines of Jerusalem is because of all the refugees that had flooded south. How are we going to protect all these people? So they built an additional wall to make Jerusalem's defenses larger so that Hezekiah's people would be protected. And that's another bit of archaeology that you can see. Uh, Look at verse, let's see, 6. Not only did Hezekiah prepare with water, with walls, with weapons, but also, verse 6, he appointed military officers over the people and gathered them to the square in the city gate and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, look at these wonderful words, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. That's the king you want. This is the kind of leader that you want. Hezekiah pointed to God. He says, hey, we got walls, we got water, we got weapons, but we have the Lord. The enemy has all that other stuff, but we have something they don't have. With them is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God. We have God. Look at verse 9. After this, Sennacherib king of Assyria sent his servants to Jerusalem while he was besieging Lachish with all its forces with him, against Hezekiah king of Judah and against all Judah who were at Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you are remaining in Jerusalem under siege? And if we were to keep reading, we would keep seeing the taunt of this... uh, Assyrian king, Sennacherib. Note in verse 9 that it says that the message was sent while he was besieging Lachish. Lachish is a, probably a, I don't know if you've even heard of this place before. It was a major fortress that was south and west of Jerusalem. And it was such a, a, a um, an impressive city. It had two walls around it. It was like, you can't take Lachish. It had one wall, and then it had another wall around it. So if you were there, and you like somehow made it over one wall. Now you're trapped in between two walls. You could easily be taken. If you were to go, again, to the Israel Museum, but the originals were in the British Museum in London, you would see a lot of Assyrian reliefs. I mean, they got all kinds of Assyrian reliefs. So the Lachish reliefs, if you were to go to any one of these museums, either the original in London or the uh, reliefs that are in Israel, or, again, you could just look it up online. Look at the, the uh, Lachish reliefs. 
This was such an incredible victory for Sennacherib. He lined the palace, his palace room in Nineveh with the siege of Lachish. This was such a big deal. And it was while he was besieging Lachish, while the big deal was happening, he sends to Hezekiah and basically says, what do you think you're doing here in Jerusalem? We're coming up here and we're going to clean house. And basically trying to talk them into surrendering rather than continuing with this foolishness of trusting in the Lord as opposed to trusting in me. This is, uh, this is what he was trying to do. Lachish is about to fall. Th- these are the facts. Look at verse 14, some of, this, some of the taunt. Verse 14, who was there among all the gods of these nations which my fathers utterly destroyed, who could deliver his people out of my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Look down at verse 19. They spoke of the God of Jerusalem as of the gods of the peoples of the earth, the work of men's hands. So, about the time that you determine that you're going to trust the Lord, we're told, notice in verse 8, in verse 7 and 8 is when he makes that great statement, don't be afraid, we've got the Lord, everything's going to be great, we've got God. Very next verse, after this. Sennacherib came up and began taunting. It is after we make a full-on dedication to God that the enemy hits us with everything he's got. And he does it through discouragement. And he does it by telling you the facts. Here are the facts. Assyria has never lost. They are undefeated. They have an army that has been very, very effective against all the gods of all these other nations. And so they're coming up against you with the same force. And by the way, Lachish is about to fall. You know Lachish, two walls. What do you think you're counting on? These are the facts. But if these were all the facts Hezekiah believed, fear would rule him. Look at verse 20. But... King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. Wouldn't you love to have Isaiah as your prayer partner? (laughs) Get Isaiah the prophet over here and we're going to pray. Hezekiah and Isaiah pray about this and they cry out to the Lord about this. We see from the text a principle here, simple but essential. Face your fear with faith and prayer. Face your fear with faith and prayer to the God who is in control. Face your fear with faith and prayer to the God who is in control. My breakfast of choice is cereal. I've got boxes of cereal. I just walk down the cereal aisle with an empty basket and just 
cereal is usually my breakfast. And while I'm having my cereal, I scroll through the news feed. The last couple of days, as I've anticipated uh, our time together this morning, I've really been paying attention to the news. It's all bad news. I, I actually did see something about Social Security going up, which is, you know, I don't know. I didn't tap it because it's not relevant to me yet. So it's going up, right? So they say. That was the only bit of good news that I saw. Everything else, everything else was bad news. And it was often so jarring. In fact, I don't know if it was this week or last week. Maybe it was last week. Uh, when it, it always gets my attention when there's something about Israel, and it's the headline from a fairly liberal outlet said, uh, Rockets rain down on Jerusalem. Rain down on Jerusalem. Well, I clicked that and I read it. Rockets weren't raining down on Jerusalem. It said 97% of those that were fired at Jerusalem, their iron dome, dome killed, you know, took out like that. And the other 3%, Israel just let fall. Why waste a rocket on something that's just going to hit in the desert? Rockets weren't raining down on Jerusalem. Not at all. But, boy, that got my click. If you want the bad news, listen to the world. And some of what they tell us are facts, but, boy, it is limited, isn't it? It's not all the truth. The fact is, Assyria's never lost, but that's not all the facts. There are also facts that there is a God in heaven who rules and who controls all things. Face your fear with faith and prayer to the God who is in control. You probably got some facts to face. Can I suggest a few that might be on your fear radar? You don't have the money for that. The doctor's report doesn't look good. Time is running out. Things have never changed before. Why should they change now? I'm not sure about my financial security. I'm afraid for my health. I'm afraid for my children and grandchildren. Or maybe you're afraid for the most certain event that will happen in your life, and that is your death. But let me ask you a question. Have you prayed about this as much as you are worrying about it? This is what Hezekiah and Isaiah did. They got together and prayed. Now, granted, when you're faced with a crisis like this, prayer is something that we'll do. But we don't often interpret our fears as crises that are prayer-worthy, just worry-worthy. We'll worry about something for hours before we'll think about praying about it. We need to bring it to the Lord. Remember, worry, as Jesus said it, is a sin. Anxiety, being anxious, is a sin because it places the, the onus, the responsibility on us or on anything other than the Lord. Seek him in prayer. Well, look what happened. Verse 21. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. 
So he returned in shame to his own land, and when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. We aren't given the details here, but if we were to read the parallel account in 2 Kings, in chapter 19, it says that the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians in their sleep. And notice he's, he selected, and notice it was one angel, an angel. I mean, this is some angel. An angel. Just send one angel. Take care of those Assyrians. 185,000. And the ones that were killed, it didn't say we killed the, the cooks and the bottle washers and all these, no killed the warriors, the commanders, and the officers. How'd you like to say, okay, guys, let's go out and get them. And everyone that's going to go out and get them is dead. In fact, I think it's in the, uh, the Second Kings account that says, and when they woke up in the morning, they were all dead. <laughs> I love that. I hate it when I wake up and I'm dead. But that's the way it was. Now, we have this account. You know, the Assyrians also have an account of this. It's on, it's on what's called Sennacherib's prism. Prism. And if you were to Google that and look it up, you could look it up. It is a, I don't know how many sides it's got. It's probably more than six. Maybe it's like eight. But it's this prism. It's about, you know, a foot tall. And it's written in, I think, Akkadian. And it talks about how uh, Sennacherib, in fact, I may have even written it down. Yes. Uh, Sennacherib says this, on the prism it says this, As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to the countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them. Himself, I made him a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. That's all it says. doesn't say I conquered it, because he didn't. also forgot to mention the fact that, that they all woke up dead. And he talks about how he conquered all these other cities, but he couldn't conquer Jerusalem. He didn't mention that. He just left it out. Spend politics is nothing new. Revisionist history. And his children killed him. Exactly. So here's something to bolster your faith. I've mentioned already the, the tunnel, Hezekiah's tunnel, the Siloam inscription, Hezekiah's broad wall, Sennacherib's prism, the Lachish reliefs. I mean, these are five bits of archaeology that you can actually see and touch with your hand, if you touch it, just make sure nobody's looking at the time, that directly relate to the story of Scripture. And here is a second principle that isn't actually in the text, or maybe we could derive it from the text, but that archaeology helps us derive from the text, and that is that we have a faith that is rooted in history, not myth. You can't dig up stuff that King Arthur left. But you can dig up stuff that, he, that King Hezekiah left. We have a faith that's rooted in history. The biblical record, as well as the Assyrian record, confirms that Sennacherib did not take the city. Jeffrey Scheller, longtime reporter for U.S. News and World Report, wrote this. 
Without question, the scripture's portrayal of ancient Israel's kingdom era is remarkably well attested by the weight of modern archaeological evidence. In broad and colorful strokes, the amazing abundance of inscriptions from that pivotal period unearthed during the last century has amplified the Bible's accounts of history. You see, the Bible is not a science book, but what it says about science is true. The Bible is not a history book, but what it says about history is true, and it had better be true. It had better be true, because what we believe is true. In fact, we know, as Jesus said, Jesus said this to Nicodemus. He said, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, if you can't, if I talk about earthly things and I can't prove it, how are you going to believe about the heavenly stuff that, that I can't prove? But the flip side is, if I tell you about earthly things and I can prove it, that gives credence to the heavenly things that you can't verify. Jesus did similar things with his miracles. The purpose of the miracles wasn't just mercy, but they were signs. In fact, the example of, remember when Jesus in the book of Mark healed that man and said, uh, your sins are forgiven. And they said, you can't say your sins are forgiven. That's like blasphemy. Jesus says, I do have authority to forgive sins. In fact, to show you that I have authority to forgive sins, I'll heal this guy. And he healed him, which showed not only did he have power to do this, but he had power to do what isn't provable. Archaeology helps us that. Archaeology proves nothing, but it supports very heavily the historical record in Scripture. So God killed these Assyrians. Well, that's great. But what about in our lives when he doesn't? What about when we don't get the happy ending? What about then? Listen. We don't have time to turn there, but just listen, if you would, to Daniel chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. You remember the context, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar says, you had better worship or we're going to toss you into the fiery furnace. They say this, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see how that works? We are shown here that God can do it, but if he doesn't do it, that means he's got a plan that's bigger than what we can understand. We pray for the healing, but if there's no healing, do we still trust the God who's in control? We pray for safety, but if there's an accident, do we still trust the God who's in control? We pray for that one thing that we think we want in life that God continues to say no to, and if he says no, do we trust him that he is still in control? See, the happy ending, let me, let me ask you, who says this is the ending? Who says this life is the ending? The happy ending, my friend, has no ending. It's eternal. The ending that we're longing for is not this life. It's the next life. Or I should say, it's this life resurrected. It's so essential that we continue to look at life from the context of our full life, and that is eternity and not just here and now. 
Now, here and now, if my arm is broken, it hurts. I want it healed. But if God doesn't heal it, uh, you understand the, uh, the metaphor. Well, our final principle is simply this. God's truth brings peace when the hard facts bring fear. God's truth brings peace when the hard facts bring fear. The world forces us to face facts. God challenges us to do the same. The world's facts force us to trust the Lord. God's facts show us that we can trust him. God's facts say that we can trust him. So there's several things I'd like you to say with me. And by say, I mean actually say it out loud. So I'm going to say it, and then you repeat it. These are biblical facts to help you with your fears. First of all, I will not die until it is God's time for me. I will not die until it is God's time for me. God's provision or lack thereof has my good in mind. God's provision or lack thereof has my good in mind. And finally, God will never leave me or forsake me. God will never leave me or forsake me. Oh, I know we got to stop. And I think I've shared this with you before, but I'm going to try to push through it. And if I blubber like a baby or scream like a woman, just forgive me. I was very discouraged months back. Months back. I know I look all stained glass to you, but I struggle just like you do. Believe me. And there was a morning that I was in such despair, just struggling to keep my heart and mind focused on God and on all things in life that I felt were out of control. So I was sitting there. The coffee was dripping, and I was waiting to go in and have my quiet time with God. And as I was waiting there, I just prayed in the darkness of my kitchen. just prayed, Lord, do not abandon me. Immediately in my mind, like electricity, in fact, I think it was from the left side to the right side, just zoom, I heard the scripture, I will never leave you or forsake you. It was in my head. I'm not saying God talked to me, but he brought that scripture to mind. Immediately. We need to remember the truth when the world tells us. Here's the facts. There are bigger facts than the world's facts. There's God's facts. He will never leave us or forsake us. We will not die until it's God's time for us. And God's provision or lack thereof has good in mind. These are facts. It's just that God's facts require faith. Let's pray. Lord, we love Hezekiah because of his humanity, but also because of his faith, his strength. Thank you for sending him a friend and a prophet like Isaiah. Thank you for those good words and encouragers that you send in our lives, that we can pray with, that we can talk with, that we can cry out to you with. But mostly, Father, we're grateful for you, for your heart as we've seen revealed here in the life of Hezekiah, how he turned to you with simple 
faith and desperation, realizing he had nowhere else to go, and you came through. Father, we also do that in our lives and in those desperate kitchen moments where we bow before you. Thank you so much for showing up. Even if you don't change the situation, you bring to our minds and hearts truth that is larger than the facts of the world. And you strengthen us to take another step, another day, to persevere to the rapture or to the day of our death. We thank you for the hope that you give us in the scriptures, that we can keep going and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Okay, Friday morning, don't forget Teddy's celebration of life service in the sanctuary. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>